series the last several weeks on the book of First Samuel. And we've simply been walking through these chapters looking at these scenes of God's faithfulness to a people that have been rejecting him. It's been encouraging, stirring up my own heart about God's faithfulness to me and my own rejection of him often. But we've also been going through this series because we want to see how all of Scripture is speaking about the same God, his same character from beginning to end. So from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, and Malachi to Matthew to the end of Revelation, all of Scripture is authored by God. It's inspired by him to speak about his ways so we can understand who he is. But sometimes there's a misunderstanding that happens that the Old Testament is inferior to the New Testament. As though the Old Testament's about this grumpy, grouchy, angry God that's all about judgment, right? And then the New Testament is where God's patient, he's kind, he's full of love, but the setting kind of gets in people's minds that the Old Testament is about a different kind of God than the New Testament. But we just want to see that's not at all true. That again, all of scripture, hear me, is one cohesive story from beginning to end about God's redemption of the world. And God is unchanging. His holiness, his unflinching justice, his love and his faithfulness does not change from beginning to end, but all of scripture reveals God and who he is. However, we have to recognize that this idea that the Old Testament is different doesn't come out of nowhere, right? That there are certain passages in the Old Testament that are really difficult. Can you say that? Really challenging for us to understand. And what we're going to look at this morning is certainly one of those passages that is most difficult for us to understand. And this is 1 Samuel chapter 15. I encourage you, if you have a Bible, open up with me there. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible. If you're new to that, we'll also have a lot of this on screens for you. Just to give a little background, the book of 1 Samuel, it's about the rise of kingship in this country of Israel. And God has rescued his people out of slavery centuries before from Egypt. He's faithfully led them through the wilderness, brought them into a land that he promised to them, and he's watched over them. He's protected them. But in these times when they wander from God, he allows other nations to oppress them, to call them back to himself. But after long enough, the people reject God as their king, and they ask for a different king. So God raises up a prophet named Samuel. He gives them this king named Saul that we've seen through these stories. And Saul, off the bat, just seems so full of promise. He just seems like the right king. But as we go through the story, we begin to see that Saul's actually full of fear. Saul's full of foolishness. And Saul is not after God's heart. But again, here in 1 Samuel 15, he's been king for probably a decade or more, and we see this command that God gives in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. This is where the questions begin. See this with me. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. should have this on a slide for you. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Again, this is a a command that God is giving Saul. And this probably, more than any other passage, 
is cited by those who are critical of Christianity. Saying, see, like, how can you believe in a God that would give this kind of command, right? How can you believe in a God of love when he tells to wipe out an entire group of people? How could you possibly follow this kind of God? So you can begin to see where people begin to create a division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe something was different back then. And it's not just critics of Christianity. I'm sure for many of you here as Christians, we also struggle with this kind of passage. What do we say? And we'd be absolutely heartless if we weren't a little bit disturbed by what this passage says, if we weren't confused. This is why it's also really easy just to blow by these passages, to not address them at all. That's purposefully why we as a church want to walk through the books of the Bible. So we're looking at all of it, even the really difficult, hard passages. What are they teaching us? And I'll admit, this passage is also difficult for me. I don't have some perfect, all-encompassing answer. And honestly, I don't think anybody does. But I do want to just lay out three ideas that I think give us a little bit of a way through the fog. Doesn't clear it all away completely, but I think helps us see a bit our way through. So three ideas here. First of all, I just want to say that God is beyond our understanding. God is immeasurably beyond us. The Holy One, the King, his knowledge is unfathomable. His greatness we cannot capture. He's from beginning to end. He is eternal. We cannot understand who God is. So it makes sense that there at times would be things that God says or does that would be confusing to us. Because we don't have his knowledge, we don't have his greatness, so there at times are going to be things that happen that aren't quite right or confusing to us. And we should be cautious if everything God says and does that we believe perfectly aligns with our assumptions. We should be cautious about that. It would actually be a sign that we're making God in our image rather than confessing that we're made in his image. If we're not uncomfortable at times with what God says and does, it might mean that we've made up our own version of God. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City, he puts it this way, we've made a Stepford God. He's talking about this old movie called The Stepford Wives where this town replaces all the wives with these servile robotic replacements that do whatever they wish, right? So Tim Keller's saying, this is what we do with God. We replace the real living holy God that's at times confusing with us for a God that always makes sense. So let's take out the hard parts and let's just believe what's easy for us. We're making a Stepford God. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he's walking through the deeps and the challenges of what God does and says, he, he says this in Romans chapter 11. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So God is immeasurably beyond us. There will be things we do not understand. So step one. But idea two that I want to lay out here is that we see this in this passage not for ethnic or religious reasons, but God is commanding this for justice. 
Again, not for ethnic or religious reasons, but because of his justice. What do I mean here? When you first read this passage, it could seem that God is saying, wipe out the Amalekites because they as a people group, he's just like, they're a dirty people group. But we see this is actually not the case. They would have been almost cousins to the people of Israel. They're close kin. So if we go back into Genesis, we see that God called a man named Abraham. And he made a promise to him. He said, I will make you a great. He said, I will make you great with many nations that will be your descendants. Many nations. It takes a while. Abraham has one son named Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob later gets a name change, becomes Israel, has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. We get that. But Esau, he has a descendant named Amalek, which comes from the Amalekites. And so these would have been close cousins nearly for the people of Israel. So they would not have necessarily seen them automatically as enemies, but actually as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. I will make you many nations. Not just one, but many nations. More than this even though, we see in the beginning of Genesis where God says all people are made in his image. (laughs) Not just Israelites, all all people are made in his image and share that same fundamental value. And this is also why we see at the end of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathering around the throne of Jesus. Not just some nations, but all nations, all tongues, all people will be around the throne of Jesus, praising him. And all people, all people have the blood of Jesus Christ shed for them. So we share equal value in the eyes of scripture. That's what it teaches. So not for at all ethnic reasons, but it's also not because of religious reasons. Certainly the Amalekites would have worshiped a different God, uh, but this is not surprising because all of the nations around Israel worshiped different gods, right? So from the Egyptians to the Philistines that we've seen in 1 Samuel to later the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all of them worship different gods, but God, Yahweh, never gives this command to them to destroy other nations. So it's not a religious matter. And and what's more, Israel has been called to be a light among the nations. They're supposed to be different in the way they live, in their laws, their treatment of one another, so that these other nations would see this is the true God. These are his true people so that they would follow him. And we do see in scripture people from all these other nations, they do believe in God and begin to follow him at different times, even among the Amalekites. So it's not because of ethnic, not because of religious reasons, but it's because of justice, because of justice. See what God, again, says here in verse two. He says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. This is God's reason for this command. What's, what's going on here? What is this talking about? Exodus chapter 17 tells the fuller story that as soon as the people of Israel had crossed this Red Sea miraculously by God's power, they begin to cross through the Sinai Desert and they are attacked without cause by the Amalekites who seek to destroy them without reason. And Joshua has to gather the people and fight off the Amalekites. But because of this, God makes a promise then. And Exodus 17 says, I will completely wipe out the Amalekites for what they did to you today. And we see this repeated later in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19. God brings this up again. See how he lays this out. He says, remember 
This is very purposeful. God does not do this often. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way when you came up out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on the journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So it seems here the Amalekites had sought to destroy and to wipe out the people of Israel in a moment of weakness when they're just escaping slavery and God does not forgive forget this moment. But this also does not seem to be a one-time thing. This is important. Not a one-time moment, but the Amalekites seem to continue to be set on destroying the people of Israel. For instance, later in the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see the Amalekites attack a town that belongs to David and his men called Ziklag. So many great names in the Bible, right? Ziklag, and they completely destroy this town. They completely destroy it and take people with them as servants and captives set on destroying the people of Israel. Or again, a pastor in Australia named Steve McAlpine, he has a great article that's been really helpful for me in all of this. He points out as well that later in the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, there's a man named Haman. And he's described as a descendant, an Agite, which is probably strange, but we'll see in this chapter, 1 Samuel 15, that the king of the Amalekites at this moment is named Agag. And so later it said Haman is an Agagite, meaning that he's a descendant of this Agag. He is an Amalekite, Haman. And Haman in Ruth, he puts together this plot to destroy all of the people of Israel throughout the Persian Empire and lays this whole plot. But God, if you know the book of Ruth, intervenes through this bold diplomacy of Ruth. And then instead of destroying the people of Israel, God turns it around on Haman's own head. Instead of them being destroyed, Haman himself is destroyed. So what he sowed and sought out for other people, he himself reaps. We see that something similar is happening here in 1 Samuel 15, that the Amalekites, again, are people that seem to be, from beginning to end, set on the destruction of Israel. And so God, in his justice, he actually allows them to reap what they have sowed for other people. So it's not for ethnic or religious reasons, but God and his justice is punishing them for their unprovoked attack and effort to destroy the people of Israel. So that's number two. Still a little bit of confusion here, perhaps I want to bring out a third idea. That the true shock is not God's judgment, but his mercy. The true shock is not God's judgment, but his mercy. And certainly it is surprising what we see in this passage, God's judgment. But for most modern secular people, any, any scene of God's judgment is off-putting. It's off-putting to us until we consider more deeply the deep need for God's judgment. The deep need for God's judgment. So for instance, we are rightly disgusted when there's a moment in our justice system where someone has clearly committed a a crime and they are not punished for it. And we know our history in the United States that we have many atrocities that have happened in our country that people have not paid the consequences for, that they've not not been punished for. You might have seen there's a a new movie coming out soon on Emmett Till. And he was a 14-year-old teenage African-American boy from Chicago. And he came down to visit family in Mississippi. 
and two men brutally murdered Emmett Till. An absolutely horrific story. But we know from history, these two men that murdered Emmett Till, they were never brought to justice. They were never convicted. And, and this is just one story of Emmett Till that's horrifying. But there's so many other stories, not just obviously in American history, but throughout the world. So many of these moments. And we resonate and we know that it's wrong when someone has the power to bring justice and they fail to do so. That in itself is an injustice, no? When a judge, a court, or a jury has the power to convict and someone is clearly guilty, but because of bribery or racism or any other cause, there's no justice, we rightly lament over that. Makes it all the more disgusting. We should long for judgment and justice. So what then about God? Sit in this with me. What then about God? He has all power. Nothing can hold him back from bringing judgment. What's more, that he has perfect knowledge. So he knows every crime, but more than that, he knows the motive and every heart. So he's never led astray. He's never going to get a wrongful conviction. He knows everything perfectly. So why then is God's judgment not more clearly among us, right? As we see all of these atrocities that have happened in our history and there's no justice that's brought, God, where are you? This is a cry that resonates throughout the Psalms and the prophets. God, where is your judgment? This is the real shock. God, what are you doing? There's an American theologian named Meredith Klein and he draws out, that these moments, like what we see among the Amalekites, what we see in the plagues that come against Egypt, even the flood, these are intrusions, hear me, of God's ultimate judgment that will one day be. That God is bringing almost a foretaste and a promise of the justice that he will one day bring at the end of all things. And let me be honest, for us who are comfortable and don't have any injustice to complain of, that's not great news. But if you're oppressed, if you've been downtrodden, this is your hope, that you are longing for the day when God will bring justice because you can't and you've been denied. So for the oppressed and the downtrodden, it is good news to look forward to the day when God will bring judgment on your persecutors. And so they rightfully look forward to this moment when Christ will judge every nation and Christ will judge every individual, me included, and he will not overlook any crime, any atrocity, any injustice. And I hope and believe we will all step back at that moment and say, God, you have judged rightly. You are just and worthy of praise, O oh God. So we look forward to that moment of God's judgment. And we just see these moments in scripture as an intrusion, if you will. Again, a foretaste and a promise of what will be. But this just highlights all the more. Stay with me here. God's judgment is one day coming, but how then could he ever bring forgiveness and mercy? How does God, hear me, how does God forgive us when we're guilty of wrong? If God's forgiving us, isn't that overlooking injustice? The very thing that would be wrong for him to do? So how can he bring forgiveness and let us off the hook without being himself unjust? Do you see this dilemma? The only way forward we see in scripture is that for us to receive forgiveness is that someone else has to willingly take our place. 
Someone else has to willingly take on the crimes and the atrocities on their own shoulders in our place. That way, God is just in punishing what's been done wrong, and he can be merciful to you and I. He's just and the justifier. This is our hope of what God will one day do. But who, who could ever do this? Who could ever carry this kind of load on their shoulders? I can hardly think about the story of Emmett Till, to be honest with you. I can hardly hear that story without feeling broken. And this, again, is just one of many stories throughout the history of our world full of injustice and atrocities and abuse. So who could ever take the weight of all of that on their shoulders? Who could ever take the weight of every slight and slander, all the stealing and killing, all the murders and atrocities that we've seen? Who could ever take all of that on their shoulders? Who? Who could ever do that? You see, Anselm of Canterbury beautifully says that this is a price that only humanity must pay. We're the ones who've done this. We must pay the price. But we see only God could bear it. Only God's great enough and worthy enough to bear this cost. So it's a price mankind must pay, but only God could pay. So in the beauty of his redemption, God became man so that he could take this cost on himself and suffer in our place. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter three, he says so beautifully, says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this, get it, to demonstrate his righteousness, he's just, because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished, but he still needs to be just but he did it in Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. This is why we sing songs like the divine exchange. Hallelujah, grace is mine. Because I see that Christ took my place, that God became man in order to bear the penalty for me, so now praise God, he is just and he is merciful to us. So the true shock again is not God's judgment, but his mercy to us in Jesus. Do you see this? Where does this lead us though? In the book of 1 Samuel. Seeing what God commands here to the Amalekites, Saul goes out and he wipes them out, except for their king, Agag, and the best of their livestock, their sheep, their goats, and their cattle. So Saul seems to keep this command, but he comes to the prophet Samuel, and he seems full of optimism, and Saul says, the Lord's blessing be with you. I have kept the Lord's command. Seems so optimistic, but Samuel instead, he says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You say you've kept God's command, but I hear the evidence otherwise. And Saul tries to bring out his best excuse, and he says, well, the soldiers convinced me to keep the best of the cattle that God commanded me to kill because we wanted to keep it as a sacrifice. So you notice Saul's excuse here. One, it's not him, but it's the soldiers that had this idea. And two, I mean, it's a sacrifice. God, how could you be upset with that? We're trying to help you and give a gift to you. But Samuel, again, is not having this excuse from Saul. And very importantly, he lays out this reason. 
and verse 22. Hear this from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. But to obey is better than sacrifice. Confronted with this, Saul kind of brings out his heart and he says, yes, it's true. I was afraid of the voice of my soldiers. His heart is led by people pleasing. I was led by the voice of my soldiers rather than the voice and the command of the Lord. And this is twice now we see in 1 Samuel that Saul is using a religious practice to cover up his fear and his unbelief. Again, this is twice now he's using religious practices, something like a sacrifice, in order to hide the true motives of his heart. But God is not fooled. God sees the motives of our heart. He knows our reasons. And so it's important for us to see that even as we have a distaste for people, who hide wrong behavior behind religious practices, so also God has a distaste for this. So, you know, even though people might not say this, we have thoughts like, yeah, I know I'm cheating my neighbor, but I'm a deacon at the church, you know? Like, I'm, I'm really harsh with my children, but I give a lot to missions. We would never say this even to ourselves, but these are the secret things we hold and that people see in our lives around us and get tired of hypocrisy in Christians. But hear this news, God is also tired and does not have patience with this kind of hypocrisy. We can't use religious practices to hide wrong behavior in our lives. God does not have this and he won't have it in Saul. So he rejects Saul as his king. But in this rejection, I want to look at one last riddle here in this passage. One last riddle. It says in 1 Samuel that as God is rejecting him, God also grieves this moment. Puts it even stronger than that. It says God regretted that he made Saul king. It's a word that can also mean repent, that God repented or regretted that he made Saul king. Notice how it says this twice. In verse 10, it says, I regret that I have made Saul king. That's strong language. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And not just once, but again at the very end of the chapter in verse 35, it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. But sit in this. How can God be regretting when he knows all things? He's not deceived about the future. He's not living in ambiguity like we might. He already knows all things. Our past, our present, our future. So how could God be sitting in regret? How could he ever be looking back and say, I wish I would have done this differently? To make this even more confusing, 1 Samuel uses the same word twice, but with the opposite meaning, the opposite intent. So see this in verse 29, right in the heart of the story, it says, and also in the ESV, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So twice, once at the beginning and once at the end, it says God does regret. And then twice in the middle, it says God is not like us. He doesn't have regret. You see the confusion here. What in the world is going on in 1 Samuel? We need to see, first of all, this is not an accident. 
This is absolutely intentional by the author of 1 Samuel. This is actually how these stories teach us because they create tension. They create these questions so that we would wrestle with them and see the difference. So for instance, it's trying to draw us into seeing that yes, on the one hand, God does know all things. He doesn't have regret like us. He's the glory of Israel. He's the king who made everything, so he doesn't look back and wish he had done things differently. He does not regret like us. But on the other hand, what 1 Samuel's trying to draw out is God is not some cold, heartless king. That when he sees us do wrong things, his heart truly grieves. In that sense, he regrets. There's real emotion here, the fullness of affection and God that the text wants us to see. That we're not following a cold king, but his holiness and his love lead him to have a true grieving in his heart. Commentator that we've listened to before, Dale Ralph Davis, again, puts this so well for us. Hear this. He says, these verses are not intended to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over the lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over lack of obedience. The form, Yahweh repenting or regretting, can mean both, in which the text communicates this truth is a bold one. And it was probably meant to be so, to get our attention. And we need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. So God's heart truly grieves, truly grieves our sin. And this is why we see the same God in Jesus, who when Lazarus is in the grave and sees Mary, his sister, weeping, it says Jesus also wept. That he's no cold slab of concrete, as Dale Ralph Davis says, but he's really moved. Or again, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he looks over the city and it says he wept because he knew Jerusalem would reject him, their true king, and what kind of judgment that would lead to. His heart is moved. He's not heartless. He feels deeply for us. Or again, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his death, Jesus is praying with anguish. He's not going to his death without any feeling. He's praying with anguish. says sweat like drops of blood coming down from his face. Yet he endured for the joy set before him that he would redeem you and I. It was that same delight, that same heart and true affection, his joy set before him that he endured the cross. So it's the same God from beginning to the end of scripture. You see this again. That we're not seeing a different God in the Old Testament and something else in the New. It's one cohesive story about God's redemption of all things. And his deep heart for us that is moved by our rejection, is moved by our disobedience, yet does not hold back. And he has come for you and I. Praise God. 